This is John Halsman, and welcome to the culture section, where we look at the things in life that really matter. And as I sit here with my lovely cup of espresso in front of me, with Mandela, one of my five cats, wandering around demanding attention, as I'll fight him off as we do this, but he likes to listen to the podcast, and I don't want him to uh, be disappointed. I want to thank Garrett Murch, my very good friend, who wrote his first political satire, Ezzy's Education, his first book which we've been serializing for most of the last year, and that has filled our culture section. And it's a great guide, as stories tend to be, into looking at why America is so politically polarized. Being a ripping read, you learn a lot about high school nowadays, you learn a lot about how they communicate, and you learn an awful lot about Maine and fly fishing, two things upon which Garrett is an expert. But he's mostly an expert at explaining why America is the way it is politically, without having to feed you asparagus to do so. It's a lovely read, and I've been honored to put that in our uh, mix here on John's Substack for the last year. But now that we're done with that, we're going to go back to the culture section um, and look at some of my favorite writers, movies, artists, and the things that make life really matter. If realism is about defending the civilized world, occasionally we should have a look at the civilized world. And so never fear, this Thursday, we'll continue our series with the book and start with chapter one and what in the world was I thinking as we look at chapter one and begin the process of going through the last best hope. Please, please, please pre-order it so we can defeat as we are up to now the Amazon algorithm. But please, it's open on amazon.com. And for those of you who are British, amazon.co.uk, you can find the last best hope a History of American Realism. I wrote an article out of the book for The Messenger, which has done great guns in America. And so please keep it coming, and please do continue continue to pre-order the book. Uh, now's the time. Thanks very much. So let's move on to the culture. Why does Raymond Chandler matter? Well, first of all, who is Raymond Chandler? Chandler was born in 1888, and he died in 1959, and he had a very interesting life. He's almost quintessentially uh, the life you think of as a 20th century American, or in his case, Anglo-American writer. Uh, hard drinking, hard womanizing, hard living, uh, suicide attempts, utter chaos, and yet out of this he managed to create some art. This is a guy who uh, had lived life, and when you read about his protagonist, the detective, the laconic Philip Marlowe, who was the hero of his four novels that we're going to look at, you get the feeling of a man who's lived life. In the case of Chandler, he'd fought in World War I. He twice had the Spanish flu, which was far more virulent than COVID, killed far more people. Right after the war, he twice had that and lingered near death, fought in the First War, volunteered to fight in camp for the Canadians. Um, rather centrally to his life, when he came home from the war, he had an affair with a married woman who was 18 years his senior, Sissy, his wife. And he braved out society not liking that and his mother disapproving. And when his mother died in the 20s, he finally married Sissy, again, 18 years his senior, and they stayed together for the rest of her life. She died in 1954, so for the better part of 30 years. But this is a man having fought through World War I, had an affair when it was not the done thing to go on and marry the woman you're having an affair with, God forbid. Um, it's okay to have one in the hypocrisy of the day just not to marry her. Uh, he married her, um, heavy womanizing in his life, heavy drinking in his life, clinical depression in his life, and critically, um, 
1932, at the age of 44, he also had a midlife crisis relating to his work. Um, he had become the vice president of Dabney Oil Syndicate. Uh, he was highly paid uh, vice president of an oil company, but in 1931, the Great Depression reared its head to make him suddenly unemployed. It didn't help that they had ample grounds to get rid of him. His alcoholism, his absenteeism, his promiscuity with the various members of staff, um, and his threats to commit suicide in the office. This was not, he was an HR nightmare before people talked about such things. Um, and so all this made it very easy for him to be gotten rid of. So at the age of 44 in 1932, Chandler finds himself without a job. And he dabbled with writing before. And he said as he was heading up and down the California coast where he lived, that, that rather than he had to spend time talking to clients, and the only two things that he could read at the time were either women's magazines, which he didn't like, or pulp magazines, as they were known, like Black Mask, which gave ripping yarns of detective stories, a lot of violence, very lurid, very inexpensive, and awfully, off, 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 quite often the writing wasn't very good. Anyway, Chandler liked these a lot and began to, for fun, critique them, look at how the structure of those plots was made. And so in 1932, he decided, you know what, I'm going to make a go of this. And so he became, out of nothing, in one of the best midlife career changes in history, a detective fiction writer after losing his job at the oil company. And he wrote popular, he started writing short stories for popular pulp magazines like Black Mask. And what he liked in Black Mask was the writing uh, certainly was looked down upon as not serious writing, not serious literature of the time. And you compare it to people like Dorothy Sayers and Agatha Christie writing uh Country House Murders in England, but by the way, I adore both of them. In the future, we might actually have a series on both. But, he, you know, while these are fantastic and Chandler liked them, he found the atmosphere stultified, the character development unsatisfying, and writing about the upper-class English didn't really relate to a lot of people living in the United States. What he liked about Black Mask was that for all people looked down at it, the writing was forceful and honest, two words that certainly describe Chandler's writing, but also the coming American general literature of the time, forceful and honest, would be words that certainly, as you know, my great hero, Ernest Hemingway, uh, they certainly uh, would describe him. Scott Fitzgerald at his finest was forceful and honest. Faulkner at his best was forceful and honest. John Steinbeck, who we're going to look at, was forceful and honest. That American literature in general was moving to action verbs, not passive verbs as the English and Europeans so often used, but muscular prose that said something true and something real, as Hemingway put it. And Chandler would heartily have agreed with this. And in fact, his favorite writer was F. Scott Fitzgerald. And despite writing Pulp Fiction in what was a great frustration, to Chandler that people said, oh, he's a good detective writer. Nobody said he was a good writer-writer. Now we do. I mean, now he's considered one of the greatest stylists of the 20th century. But at the time, he was just a detective writer, a subgenre, not very serious subgenre. And as he went along and got better and better at it, Chandler became frustrated with just being seen as a very good detective writer than being seen as an excellent, if not superlative, writer on his own. But again, he's part of this broader American tradition of these rising writers of America as a rising cultural force, easily winning the most Nobel Prizes for literature in the 20th century. And you see this forceful, honest action verb, gerunds, helping, striving, working, action muscular verbs rather than passive tense 
that characterized European writing, even good European writing like Evelyn Waugh, who, by the way, was an admirer of Chandler's. So he starts this new career and he writes these short stories for Black Mask and they take off because the writing, um, you know, is superior to what's in the pulp magazines in general. And so he starts his first novel, The Big Sleep, in 1939, and he's to write seven novels with Philip Marlowe, the laconic hero of his novels, the knight errant of his novels. More about that in a minute, that, that he sees Marlowe as a detective, really not as a tough guy, not as the stereotypical American tough guy like Sam Spade in the Dashiell Hammett stories, but much more, a more complicated figure, Philip Marlowe. He's laconic, but there's an awful lot of emotion and culture and civilization beneath him. And he's the knight's errand who takes us through uh, the process of the seamy underside of life in Los Angeles that is the really focus of all of uh, Chandler's writings. If you think of Faulkner as a Southern writer, as a man who chronicles the South, think of Chandler as the West Coast writer. He's the one who chronicles the rise of, of L.A. And that beneath all this prosperity and sunshine, there's an awful lot of wickedness afoot. And Chandler certainly made that clear. So he writes these seven novels between the late 1930s, 1939, and his death in 1959. But really, the 40s and early 50s are his heyday. The film noir genre comes out of the writing of Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, and others uh, who wrote for The Black Mask. And it's very filmic. Um, his work. Of the seven novels, six of them have been filmed, only playback the last and least of the seven novels. By then, Chandler was, was gravely ill and, and had really had writer's block after the death of Sissy in 1954. Uh, and playback is the least of the novels. The other six have all been filmed, a number of them, many, many times as they've gone along. And uh, so between, say, 1939, the late 30s and the mid 50s, Chandler, in effect, is reinventing American prose, and this is his great kind of um, contribution to American culture. He also, because film noir took off in the wake of these stories being wildly popular, he started to be a screenwriter as he was out in Hollywood. And for instance, he wrote D D Double Indemnity, the classic film noir with Barbara Stanwyck. And Fred McMurray in 1944 with Billy Wilder, he was the screenwriter for what is maybe the best of all the film noirs. I think you could argue that Double Indemnity of 44. He wrote um, Strangers on a Train for Hitchcock with other people, the Patricia Highsmith novel, which he thought was ridiculous, but he was the primary writer, though he and Hitchcock clashed. He called Hitchcock famously that fat bastard, so they never worked together again. Uh, but Chandler uh, wrote Strangers on a Train, which is now seen as one of the classic Hitchcocks and is a brilliant story. But again, after 1944, he's heartbroken with his wife's death. The drinking gets out of control. There's suicide attempts. He's linked to a number of women, all of whom work for him. This is a problem. His literary agent he has a fling with. His secretary he has a fling with. And George Orwell's widow he has a fling with in between clinical depression and suicide attempts. And all this finally leads to the writing collapsing. And again, he only finishes playback in, I believe, 58 before dying in 59. So his best work is between 1939 and, say, 54 when Sissy dies. Um, the key to understanding Chandler and why he's so important is that it's about the dialogue. Dialogue largely out, outranks plot. Uh, to enjoy Raymond Chandler, you have to leave the notion of a linear plot at the door. Enjoy the complexity. Everything is seen in the first person 
from Marlowe's point of view. We're investigating the case with Marlowe. Marlowe rarely has friends or anybody along with him. One of the interesting points about Chandler is that as Los Angeles is booming in the post-war era, it's sunny and prosperous and everything looks great. Chandler's the one in film noir to say, beneath all this sunny happiness, there's a darkness in the American psyche. And Chandler even though he's surrounded by this, leaves Philip Marlowe almost always alone. His sidekick, his Dr. Watson, is us, that we go along with him because the writing is in the first person. And we're really his best friend as we try to make sense of these plots. And I think of him scratching his head, not totally bested by these plots, but largely at sea trying to put things together despite his huge intelligence. The other interesting and kind of realist conservative view is, is the dour view that, that Chandler certainly has of human nature comes across quite often in these stories. The only unambiguously decent ethical person is Philip Marlowe, and everybody else is varying shades of bad, and, and he's very good at varying shades of bad. There's downright sociopathic and awful. There's slightly bad. There's slightly selfish. There's terrible. There's every, every region of bad, and the only counterbalance is the quiet ethics that, that Marlowe is a knight, that he has ethics, that he doesn't take money unless he's earned it, even though there are a, lot, a number of times in the stories, thousands of dollars are thrown his way. He won't take the money unless he feels he's earned it. He has a code. He helps those in distress like a knight. He charges them almost nothing. Uh, he charges for his expenses, but not a penny more. He's not on the make like everyone else in California. And so the balancing morally in these stories is between the various shades of bad to awful that everyone else is and the knight, the Sir Galahad, that quietly Philip Marlowe is. And it works because Chandler underplays Marlowe. He's not this tough guy. He's a complicated, interesting character. But you have to leave your head at the door about the plot. You have to be overwhelmed by the plot and begin to put these pieces together as the complexity they're utterly Byzantine, no more so than The Big Sleep, probably the most Byzantine of all his books. And Marlowe just kind of lets it waft over him and begins to sort things out. The other interesting kind of realist conservative strain that, that Marlowe uh, takes on from Chandler is that what he, he knows he can't change the world, that this notion, this simplistic notion of detectives as the modern sheriff who can right every wrong and this Manichaean good and evil view very much isn't that of, of Chandler. The Chandler at best, when Marlowe's on top of things, which he sometimes is, sometimes the plot and its complexity subsumes him and he's totally lost, and sometimes he figures out what's going on. But when he knows what's going on, the best he can do is shade things. He can't change the overall direction of history, a very conservative view. But at the edges, he can move things in the right direction, that we're not reactionaries. We don't say nothing can be done. Conservatives aren't fatalists. They can indeed and ought to do things to make the world a better place. But they know that what they do will only matter at the edges. And this will become increasingly apparent as, as Chandler goes along, no more so than in his masterpiece, The Long Goodbye late in his career, which we'll get to. But early on, he knows he can move things, but really only at the edges, and sometimes not even that. And that solving the case, in quotes, is less important than the moral situation that all these people find themselves in. Um, for all the luridness, all the sex, all the alcohol, if you keep track of what Marlowe's drinking, you'd be on the floor at any given moment, because that's probably what Chandler was drinking, and nobody could keep up. But if you look at what actually is going on, when he does figure out what's going on, even when he does, good people have bad things happen to them. And perfect justice 
is an impossibility. The best you can do is steer things at the edges in the direction that you want them to go. Marlowe, again, is not a stereotypical tough guy. He's complicated. He's well-educated. He's intelligent. He's a university graduate. Uh, his hobbies are chess and classical music. He's moved by music. He loves playing chess. He plays out games to relax when he's home. And again, he's utterly alone. It's existential. Marlowe is ethical because he thinks a good man should be. It goes back to the Greek idea of ethics. He's ethical because that's what you should be, because then living the good life is its own reward. And he doesn't expect much else. He has a crummy little office that Chandler amusingly is to always denigrate and talking down. And he has a nice, neat, tidy little apartment that he manages. But in this aloneness, um, Marlowe is good merely because being good is what you should be. He has a code. The Big Sleep itself, which is really when most people, he'd written these short stories that had kind of taken off, but The Big Sleep was his big breakthrough in 1939. And famously, when they were filming this in 1946, the classic version, I commend you to see it, with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall early on in their legendary partnership, both on and off the screen. In 46, they met in To Have and Have Not, the Howard Hawks movie of 1944. By now, they're married for The Big Sleep. Um, and Chandler was asked by William Faulkner, who was writing the screenplay, who killed the chauffeur? So complicated is the big sleep. Nobody could figure it out, reading it over and over again. Who killed the chauffeur? So they call up Chandler, who's drunk at the time, and he freely admits he has no idea who killed the chauffeur. And this has become rather a famous Hollywood story that it's so complicated that even Chandler doesn't know who kills the chauffeur. And I've just reread all seven books before we talk. And let me tell you, I'm not clear who killed the chauffeur at all. So again, it's not worrying too much about the plot, accepting that it's going to take you in crazy directions, but worrying more about what goes on beneath the plot. That what really matters is the characters, the atmosphere, the characterization. He cares a lot about character studies. How are people really, individually? What is the atmosphere of a room or a place? Nobody's better at, at creating an atmosphere. Again, like Faulkner with the South, Chandler with 1940s, 1950s Los Angeles. You're just not going to do better. It's so atmospheric. And the characterization is what matters. He doesn't care in a linear, logical way about the plot. He cares that the, the characters act in a believable way based on their character. Back to Heraclitus, for Chandler, character is destiny, and he cares that they behave in such a way as is logical, given who they are. So there's this deeper logic to Chandler, which really, really works and is interesting. And they have to be believable, even if the plot is not, and that's what he really cares about. To write these, these novels, what Chandler would do is simply cannibalize his short stories. He, In fact, two short stories, um, he put Killer in the Rain being one of them, he put together uh, to make the big sleep. And then he puts them together, writes some binding language. And because he has this backlog of material, um, he steals from himself, which you're allowed to do. I mean, I have a ton. I have a back myself, a backlog of 1,200 articles. And sometimes I go back like a fine wine and see which ones have aged well and which ones haven't. But you're building on all the work you've done. And Chandler expertly built in the 40s and 50s his novels out of what would happen with his writing earlier, his short story writing in the 30s and the 40s. So... The basic plot, and I'm not going to go into it because it's impossible. Again, read The Big Sleep, and I commend you to read these as we go, for the characterization, the atmosphere, and that the characters behave 
in a way that is honest and true to them as characters and forget the plot and go along for the ride. Because the point of Faulkner, or, sorry, the point of Chandler beyond all this, like Faulkner, is language. This is a guy reinventing the English language. This is not English English anymore, but as Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, Steinbeck were doing, so you have to add Chandler's name to this list. It shouldn't be separated. They're creating a new form of English almost, a new form of expression that is more vigorous, more violent, more muscular, more enterprising. In a phrase, it's more American. And this is the real change from the dominance of the English literature of Dickens, of Wilkie Collins, of Galsworthy, D.H. Uh, uh, Lawrence, what came before, Thomas Hardy, certainly, which I love all those writers. But now we're moving to the 20th century when American English is going to dominate. And no one does this better than Chandler, that he, in, a, in effect, almost creates a new language. The similes and the metaphors are, are, are so wonderful. Uh, one of the lines in one of the later Chandler stories is, he was about as inconspicuous as a tarantula on top of a wedding cake. Nobody would say something like that. It's funny. It's, it's totally vivid. You get the image, a tarantula on a wedding cake. You get the image that this would be highly conspicuous, and you're in on the joke. So much of Chandler is an ironic sense of humor that Chandler imparts to Marlowe that imparts to the rest of us. The irony, the sense of humor, and at, at the world's follies, and at the same time, this code beneath it all, that things do matter. I mean, Chandler is maybe the first ethical realist. And that's why I'm so drawn to him. So this highly complex plot begins by Marlowe is called to the home of the wealthy elderly General Sternwood, who's plagued by two wild daughters. Um, a low-level bookseller, Arthur Geiger, is blackmailing his absolutely crazy daughter, Carmen, batshit crazy daughter, Carmen, um, for a series of naked pictures she's taken that he's going to sell in his erotica collection. And Marlowe's sent to stop him. At the same time, Marlowe meets the older daughter, slightly less crazy, though still wild, Vivian, who he has a very, very brief fling with. In the movie, they make the character of Vivian much bigger to accom accommodate Lauren Bacall. But in the film, they're both rather minor characters, the women, barely touching uh, Marlowe's orbit. Uh, Carmen is constantly throwing herself at Marlowe to the point that one day, one night he comes home and she's naked in his bed and he throws her out, rolling his eyes because she's so incredibly crazy. Um, um, he said at one point, somebody was as crazy as two mice waltzing. There's a lovely image. Um, he throws her out and he has a brief fling with Vivian, but neither of them work because they're so decadent. Uh, they're so depraved. They're so immoral. And the two of them uh, are like Dante leading us into circles of hell in Los Angeles. And that's where the big sleep begins, but not where it ends. Uh, he finds out the older daughter, Vivian, is in a loveless marriage to Rusty Regan, a favorite of the general who has disappeared. And so Marlowe tries to keep Carmen out of trouble. And at the same time, he tries to fight Rusty Regan. And that leads us with the two daughters as they lead us through Dante's circle of hell in Los Angeles in 1939. It is a wonderful story. The language is still absolutely vivid and fresh absolutely modern and new. And what, what, what Chandler is doing, along with Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald, Steinbeck, Faulkner, is recreating a form of American English to take the place dominantly culturally of English English. And that's why The Big Sleep is important. And that's why Raymond Chandler 
matters. Please do go read The Big Sleep, 1939, Raymond Chandler, and we will talk next week about the next um, novel of Chandler, the next Marlowe novel, the second one, which is one of the big three masterpieces, Farewell, My Lovely. Until then, have a great week, and on to talk about the book this Thursday.